Now, what we've seen in David's fall is some things that we need to review, and I've noted them, but uh, I think it's worth noting them one more time. Let's just review for a second. In verse 1, it says David stayed. He stayed in Jerusalem in the time when kings would typically go out to war. He laid aside his armor, and one of the things that we brought out in last Sunday's message is that he was idle. Idleness is not rest. Idleness is activity or sitting around with no purpose. And we mentioned that there's many idle people in the world. In verse 2, David saw, he saw Bathsheba, this beautiful woman who was bathing probably in the courtyard of her home. We come to find out just by looking at the verses that she was taking a ritual bath after her cycle to be clean according to the Levitical laws. One of the reasons that is brought out is because when David is with her and uh, Uriah, the husband, is on the battlefield, any child that is conceived cannot be from Uriah. It must be from David. David sent. After he saw, he had a decision to make. And we brought out a lot of points about our modern age last Sunday. And I would encourage you to grab the message, if you were not here, about pornography statistics. And uh, again, we're going to have adult content. So I'll give you the heads up right now. But the pornography statistics in America are saying that the first exposure that kids are getting to pornographic images is the age of six. And that one in three 13-year-olds are addicted to pornography. Now, this is the world that we live in right now. This is what's happening with the instant um, society we live in where everything is just a click away. And sometimes people don't even intend to get entrapped in this, but they do. Mark Regeneres, who wrote an article for the Washington Post, he was being uh, quoted by Jim Daly on Focus on the Family. Mark Regeneres, who's a social scientist, a researcher, he wrote about the following in the Washington Post. He said that a shocking number of Christians are uncertain about their beliefs on things like cohabitation, pornography, extramarital sex, and the value of marriage. And then Jim Daly goes, I mean, think of our Christian community, especially our younger Christian community, being confused about such things. But they are. And why are they? Because they are getting their worldview largely from the secular world. Let's face it. They are getting their views from people who have an agenda in the society and believe that the old values, the old school values, are archaic. They don't understand why they should keep themselves until they're married. What is the difference? What does it matter? Because marriage has been redefined in our culture. And people are wondering if there's anything true. And I will tell you this. If you do it God's way, God's way is always the best way. Always. God's way is not going to be the easiest way, though. I have to tell you, and I think you all realize that. God's way is not the easiest way. There are things pulling at our flesh in this world constantly, bombarding us. Sin is always seemingly crouching at the door. And one of the things that we have to do is not let it in, not give the devil a foothold in our lives. Because if you leave a little crack in the door, he will try to come in and mess with your life. And so this is what's going on. David saw her, 
And then he had a moment of decision. And instead of ending it right there and taking the way of escape, which we studied in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's always a way of escape when we're tempted. And God is the way of escape. When you are being tempted, look, we all get tempted. Temptation is not a sin. Giving into it is a sin. There's always a way of escape. That's the promise. And God is the way of escape. So the next time that you are feeling tempted in whatever area is your issue or problem, God invites you that he has given you a way of escape, a way out of that temptation. He is the way out. You need to cry out to him and ask him for help in that moment. And sometimes we don't want to because maybe we're embarrassed or maybe we're so used to the same fall that we make over and over again. It's almost unthinkable to invite God into that uh, temptation. But look, God already knows what you're thinking anyway. Nothing is hidden from him anyway. So you could honestly say to God, Lord, I am struggling. Lord, everything in me wants to give into this temptation. Please help me. And when you do that, you are asking heaven's help and heaven will be faithful. Jesus will be faithful to come to your aid. David saw her. He sent for her, verse 3. He seized her in verse 4. We're not sure if it was a forcible thing, but I'm sure she felt the pressure of David's position as the king. And then Bathsheba said in verse 5, chapter 11, those famous words, I am pregnant. I'm pregnant. How long did it take for Bathsheba to know she was pregnant? I don't think they had pregnancy tests back in the day. So I think it took a little while. I think she had to see some bodily changes occur and realize she was pregnant. Weeks, maybe even a month, six weeks could have gone by. And then the note is written to the king just when he thought he had got off the hook. And maybe if you think about it, four to six weeks goes by, you think you're good. Hey, no problem. Casual one night stand, so-called. I was able to get some pleasure and everything's fine until that note comes, I am pregnant. Now we have an epidemic where that's not a big deal anymore because people just go to the next level, which is an abortion. And all of a sudden they double the grief and the sorrow. Sometimes we don't think about it in the moment. We may have gotten some bad counsel from somebody. We may have felt the pressure of our situation. And then all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a situation where we've committed some heinous sins. That's where David was. He was an adulterer now. He had broken the Torah. The Torah was something that the king was supposed to have really memorized. And he knew that in God's top 10 commandments, it said, you shall not, what? Commit adultery. You're not to do that. And in the book of Leviticus, it says that the, the penalty for adultery is death. That's some pressure. When the note comes, I am pregnant, David's thinking, man, the next thing I need to do is cover this up. I need to go into cover-up mode. And that's what a lot of people do. If you don't take the way of escape as a Christian, and look, let's face it, many a Christian have fallen to temptation. We all have made our mistakes but once you fall, if you make a mistake, if you sin, the common thing that a Christian does is repent of sin. By the way, repentance is not just for unbelievers coming to Christ for the first time. Reread Revelation 2 and 3, written to seven churches. 
Again and again, Jesus says, repent to them. And he's speaking to the church. Christians are those who regularly are repenting of sin. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect as a Christian, but you can improve as a Christian. And I think you've all discovered that if you fall to sin as a Christian, you end up being miserable. Can I get a witness? It's not something that they told me when I first walked down the aisle as a brand new Christian. But the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. And all of a sudden now you are extra sensitized to evil. The Holy Spirit, along with your conscience, says to you, don't do that. Don't go there. It's not good. Now we have to say in a modern culture where many questions are being asked, we cannot just say that this kind of situation where there's a relationship and intimacy is not pleasurable. Let's be honest. It is a pleasurable situation, but it must be fulfilled in God's way and in God's time. God created intimacy for a man and a woman within the context of marriage. And if you wait for God's timing, you will find fulfillment in that context. But if you do things outside of God's will and God's way, it doesn't mean that you can't start over again and have a new beginning in Christ. But I tell you what, if we pulled this room right now and asked the question, I know what we would get. People would say, do it God's way. If you had an opportunity to interview King David and talk to him about this chapter, what do you think he might say to you? Was the 15 minutes of pleasure worth it, David? Do you know that he will pay for the rest of his life, those closest to him will pay a huge price. He will be forgiven of what he did. But those closest to him will pay a huge price for his sin. And here's the thing. We don't sin in a vacuum. Now, I noted when we were together last time that there's a parallel between David's fall and the fall chapter in Genesis 3. Would you turn there, please? Genesis chapter 3. So Adam and Eve are in the garden. They have this incredible paradise situation. They get to see God's face. But the serpent came. We're at Genesis 3, verse 6. And he basically said, hey, Eve, God's holding back from you. God knows that in the day you eat of that forbidden fruit, your eyes will be open. You'll know good and evil. And you will be as gods. Oh, this is the oldest lie in the book. Take a bite and it will elevate you. You will be able to fly. You'll be looking down on all the other poor souls who don't get it. This is the serpent's lie. When the woman saw, verse six, think about David's fall. He saw Bathsheba, that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes. She was beautiful when David saw her. The tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Do you know that Adam was there? What was Adam doing in those moments? Watching football is my <laughs> speculation. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They tried to cover up. They tried to cover up their fall, their exposure. The serpent, where is he now? 
He had promised that if they just took a bite, they would elevate. They would be as gods. But you're going to notice in these verses, they are as low as one can ever be. Sin, when you take the bite, will cause you to cower in a corner and run from God. And this is what they discover. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, maybe at the setting of the sun. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. The presence of God that used to thrill them, the presence of God that used to be a daily experience of them seeing God, now they run from him and they hide. And the Lord God called to the man, Adam being the head was responsible and said to him, where are you? Adam, where are you? Was God trying to locate him through GPS? No. The question is remedial. The question is come out of your hiding. Where are you? Spiritually, emotionally, where are you? Are you hiding? Oh, I'm hiding because I was afraid. The, the voice that used to thrill Adam now made him fearful. And he says, I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? And all of a sudden, man plunges himself into ruin. This is called by theologians, the fall chapter. And David knew this story. David knew the Torah. Go back to 2 Samuel. Yet it's hard to learn our lessons from other people's mistakes. It seems like so many of us have to make the same mistakes over and over again. So David is going to go into a cover-up and it's going to be a sad situation. In fact, he seems to have covered his sin for about a year. He's gonna write about this as we look at chapter 12. In Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, he will write about that year. Psalm 51 is at the end of that year. And he will talk about how miserable he was. He felt like he was dried up, like his bones were aching, like the heavy hand of God was pressing on him. We'll get to that when we look at chapter 12. So here's what David does. David sent to Joab, 2 Samuel eleven six, 6, saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. Now he's the hubby of Bathsheba. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, to the king, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab. He's the commander and the people and the state of the war. Now they're fighting the Ammonites. Uriah would have to have traveled about 40 miles to get to the king. He's one of David's top 32 fighting men. Why David will pull him off the, the battlefield? It'd be like pulling your best player off the field to talk about what you thought about the movie that you saw last night. What are you talking about? You don't, you don't take one of your top 32 soldiers off the battlefield to talk about the state of the war. You can get any runner to do that. Why did he call Uriah? Because David has a plan. Here's his cover-up plan. If I can get this guy to sleep with his wife, then the child that she has within her, it will be thought that that child belongs to the natural parents. What a plan. And by the way, since the clock has been ticking, and probably a month or more has gone by. There's an urgency to David's plan, amen? He needs to get things moving quickly. 
And David was a great strategist, and he had a great mind. And so he starts to put together how he's going to go into cover-up mode. All of us know something about cover-up mode. Some years ago, I was uh, at a baseball field, and I was throwing some pitches to a young man. And he hit a ball over a fence, and there was a car coming, and he broke the windshield of the car. And the young man, who was probably a teenager at the time, looked at me and said, should we run? And I said, yes! <laughs> oh, wait a minute. I'm Pastor Michael Lance. That would be a bad career move. <laughs> I mean, our first instinct is to run. I remember years ago when we had come home and we used to play football in the living room, much to my wife's chagrin. <laughs> All the lamps were taped together. Three boys taking on their father. Oh, it was glorious. <laughs> you know, bam, bam, boom, crash, bang. And you'd have times when, who broke the lamp? I didn't break that. I didn't break that. Right? And we go into what's called blame shift 101. Adam, when he was confronted by God in Genesis 3, said, the woman that you gave me. It's your fault, God. I was fine in the garden with the animals until you brought her along. Oh, wait a minute. I mean, you're the one that said it's not good for man to be alone. I didn't say that. But when Adam saw her, what did he say? Whoa, man. <laughs> Loose translation. She is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Oh, he liked her. But now, after the fall, we go into cover-up mode. Is there hope for us if we didn't take the way of escape, if we actually fall on our face? Well, a proverb says a righteous man falls seven times a day and gets back up. Look, we, we don't want to continue to skin our knee, but sometimes it happens. So what do we do after we've fallen? Remember, I've told you in 1 Corinthians 10, you kind of want to scream at David through the corridor of time, take the way of escape, don't do this, King David. But he's going to get lower and lower and lower. Sin will take you farther than you ever thought it could and cost you more than you could ever imagine. Where's the, where's the serpent now, now that they're cowering in the corner? He's a liar. Jesus said he's the father of lies. Do you understand who we're dealing with here? He was a murderer from the beginning. He seeking someone to devour. And so Uriah comes into town. Do you think that there were whispers about the king's fling in Jerusalem? Do you think at least it was in the Jerusalem Inquirer? In the supermarket line, the king has a fling? I don't know. But I think it's possible since the advisors of David and others seemed to know that he had called for her, there were other people involved, maybe, maybe what happened was that Uriah knew. I don't know, but... David asked him, well, how's it going? What about the welfare of Joab? How are things going? David was not really interested in Uriah's well-being. 
Uriah had simply become a tool towards David's end. And when we get caught into sin, people become our tools to cover up our mess. Sadly. And so David is making small talk, but it's really all about his pride. It's all self-serving. Everything he did was about self-preservation and self-serving. David Jeremiah said, it's not about how many people are serving you, David. It's about how many you are serving. That's what humility asks. How many people can I serve? It's not about me being served, but serving. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life, what? As a ransom for many. Do you want to find fulfillment in this life? Start serving other people. Start being a person that you can give to others and give hope and encouragement. What David really wanted was for Uriah to get home and sleep with his wife. And so here's Uriah. There's some indication from Leviticus 15, I think it's verse 18, that if you were with your wife intimately, it might render you at least temporarily unfit for the battlefield. So this could be part of why Uriah doesn't go home. But David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. It's a euphemism for go be with your wife intimately. And Uriah went out of the king's house and a present from the king was sent out after him. Some wine, some chocolate maybe. I don't know what he gave him. But David wanted to encourage this encounter. So he sent him home. But Uriah, verse nine, slept. Literally he lay, which is an echo of verse four, at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. Now, when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? What's almost implied here is a thinly veiled questioning of his manhood. Are you kidding me? Why didn't you go be with your wife? You've been away for a long time. What's wrong with you, man? And Uriah said to David, 11, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat, to eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Now, if you're David, you gotta be thinking, boy, this guy's a piece of work. Here I pull him off the battlefield, I give him a vacation, I give him chocolate. I try to get him to be with his wife. And this guy's talking about honor and the ark and his comrades on the battlefield. Are you kidding me? Oh, no, we're not kidding, David. Apparently, Uriah is not going with the program of your cover-up. Isn't it unfortunate when people don't go with our program? I mean, David's thinking, I'm the king. I gave this guy a, a respite. But behind all of this is David's what? Motivation to cover his tracks. He wants a cover-up. He wants Uriah on board. And Uriah says, I will not do this thing. In Genesis 39, it's good to contrast Joseph with David. What happened was Potiphar's wife, and you just write down for your notes, Genesis 39, 7 through 10. Potiphar's wife every day was coming to Joseph. Joseph was a Good-looking young man, he had been lonely, sold into slavery, had every reason to give in to temptation. And daily, she said, 
Be with me. Be with me. Be with me. And he said, listen to these words. How can I do this thing and sin against God and sin against my master? The only thing he's not given to me, I'm over the whole household, is you. You're his wife. I cannot do this thing. Do you think that David might have heard the echo of Joseph's words in Uriah? Maybe that should have kind of lit off the siren for David. Oh my goodness, what am I doing? Maybe it's time to come clean now, but there's a huge cost to come clean at this point. David doesn't even know if he might have to die for a capital crime. And so this man's honor is remarkable. Now, if you know the story of Joseph, Joseph finally had to run away from Potiphar's wife and she accused him of trying to rape her. And Joseph ended up in a jail. Some of you are thinking, oh, great. You do the right thing and you end up in jail. Prison. But do you know that in Joseph's story, the prison became an elevator to the palace? Joseph would not sleep with her. And if he had, she probably would have said something like this. Oh, all the gods all over the world, including Israel's God, they're all the same. This guy's no different than any other guy that I would have slept with because he slept with me too. He would have ruined his witness. Now, he had to be in the jail for quite some time, in the prison for quite some time. But finally, he was remembered because of his dream interpretation. And he gets elevated before the king and gives the interpretation. And the prison becomes a doorway to the palace. Flip it around. For David, the palace became a doorway to the prison. Think about it. David thought, if I could just cover it up, I'll do the wrong thing because it's expedient. And David entered his own personal prison of sin. Wow. Do you know that there's a Hebrew word for sin in the Old Testament? It's called kata. It literally means kata. It's C-H-A-T-A. It literally means to build a wall around yourself. Here's the picture. Brick by brick until you've imprisoned yourself in your own prison of making. That's what sin is. Each time you sin, you pave another brick in the wall. And all we are is just a, another brick. Never mind. Can you strike that from the record? Why did I even? <laughs> and, you, and you put it in place and you got your little, your little paver thing, whatever that thing is called. And, and, and you place another brick in the wall and that pattern becomes your prison. David's not free. They'll tell you today, oh, you know what? The, the Bible's archaic. You, what you want is sexual freedom. And then you start making your own prison. And the only thing that will cause the walls to come down in that prison, please hear me, is humility. Please know this man standing up here was not born a preacher. I did not grow up with the dream of becoming a pastor. I did just about everything you can do the wrong way. I'm not talking to you from some ivory tower. I've tasted both sides of this track folks. And so David should have 
heard the words of Joseph in Uriah's response, and his cover-up plan fails. So David said to Uriah, verse 12, Stay here today also and tomorrow. I will let you go. You want to go back to the battlefield? So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him. And notice this. David made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Why is King David trying to get Uriah drunk now? Because he thinks that he will lower his inhibitions of honor. Folks, when you get drunk, when you let an intoxicant or a drug come into your body, you start to lose the natural inhibitions where you might put up a shield of honor in a certain area, you let your guard down. And that's what David was hoping to do. David the king has sunk so low, he's trying to get this guy drunk so he'll give in and go to his wife. But Uriah would not go down. And it came about in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab. David's got two strikes. This guy's not with the program. So finally, David writes a letter to his commander, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah 15, and he had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. We only got two options here. Either I die or he dies. And I don't want to die, David says to himself. So he needs to die. Do you see the slippery slope that David's on? Man. I mean, he, he is sinking incrementally with each step. And we want to say, David, time out, stop, just come clean. He's going to come clean after a year and be forgiven. But that year, as I mentioned, is going to bring a lot of consequences. David, in essence, says, he must die to spare me. And the gospel says that Jesus died so that we might live. Jesus came into the world with a death note. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Numbers 32, 23 says, be sure that your sin will find you out. Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who conceals or covers his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find, forsakes them will find compassion. How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Now David is going to become a murderer. And so it was, as Joab kept watch, he was besieging the city, that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men, probably at the city gate. And the men of the city, these are Ammonites, went out and fought against Joab. And some of the people among David's servants fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. Joab, who was related to David, saw the note. It was sealed with the king's signet. He was literally carrying his own death note. If he was carrying it and maybe had an inkling that David was up to no good, would you be tempted to break the seal and look inside the letter? But he didn't. He brought the letter faithfully to the commander, Joab. Joab looked at it and he complied with the king's order. They were winning the war. There was no reason to do this, but... He put him where the fiercest battle was, where the best of the remaining soldiers of Ammon were, and Uriah's dead. 
And I ask you, do you want to be that guy? Do you want to be that girl that lets sin take you to this kind of place? Well, Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war, 19, and he charged the messenger saying, when you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of that person? Jerubbesheth. Did the woman, did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebez? Why did you go so near the wall? This is what Joab's imagining that David, who's a great military man, would say. Then you shall say to the king when he asks this, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. If he asks you about my strategy, just tell him, by the way, king, Uriah is dead. Now, if you're the messenger, you have to be thinking, why, is, why does he want me to bring this out? Just write this down. In Judges 9, 50 through 54, a woman brought down Abimelech, who was the son of the judge Gideon. As they came near the wall, she hit him, I believe, if I recall the story correctly, she hit him with a stone from the wall. And he didn't want it to be said that a woman killed him. So he asked one of those soldiers that was nearby to finish him off. A woman brought this person down at Thebez. Abimelech went down by a woman. And David is going down by a woman. All because he couldn't do things God's way. And so the messengers departed. I'll say really quickly, some years ago, my sister was a pretty awesome Little League player. She was, uh, I think, the only girl in the Little League. She was a bit of a tomboy. She was a good player. In fact, for a long time in our childhood, she was a better baseball player than me. And she hit a home run in her uh, 12-year-old season off this guy. She hit it out of the park. A girl hit a home run off one of the best pitchers in the Little League. Oh, he couldn't take it. The next time she came up, he beamed my sister. Can you imagine how terrible? I'm not going to let this happen. Well, does this kind of tell you that maybe Joab knows the real cause why Uriah has to die on the battlefield? Has Joab getting, gotten word about David's shenanigans? Well, the messenger was probably puzzled as to why Joab wanted this negative report, but Uriah, whose name, remember, means Yahweh is my light, is now dead. And David said to the messenger, uh, let's go back. Look at 22. So the messenger departed, came and reported to David all that Joab had sent to, sent to him to tell. 23. The messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field. Little different version of the story. But we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servant from the wall. So some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Would you notice in verse 24? Servants is plural. Multiple people have died. Maybe because Joab thinks... If I just sent Uriah alone, it's going to look bad and people are going to question it. So he sent an envoy. Multiple people die. 
And what he was anticipating was David would get upset. Are you kidding me? Why would you do things like this? But David says to the messenger 25, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you, literally. Don't let it be evil in your eyes. For the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the siege, against the city stronger and overthrow it. So, so go and encourage him. Tell him, don't feel so bad. Casualties of war and all of that. But David set this whole thing up. The casualties of war are the result of his losing his battle with sin. You don't sin in a vacuum. Now, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Did David? She may have mourned as much as 30 days, probably something like a week. And she mourned, and David just kind of watched. He got what he wanted. She mourned. 1 Corinthians 5.2 says, you should have mourned over this, but instead you're arrogant. Final verse. When the time of mourning was over, that is for Bathsheba, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. And then she bore him a son from their affair, their adultery. But the thing that David had done, would you note it, was evil in the sight of the Lord. Have you heard God talked about anywhere in this chapter? Nope. Not until the last verse. What David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Can I submit to you? That's all that really matters. You could justify a number of things. You could cover them up. You can say, I can do this. I can get away with it. But God was watching and he was not pleased. When David took Bathsheba as his wife, and if the worship team can hear my voice, come on up. David probably did it, did it under these kind of auspices. He probably took Bathsheba as a type of a goel, a kinsman redeemer. And since Uriah was a Hittite, he probably had no family in Israel. And so probably what David did was something like this. I'm going to marry her because the soldier husband Hittite is dead and I'll be a kinsman redeemer and I'll take care of her. Doesn't that sound noble? I, I will marry the, the poor girl. I'll, I'll bring her into my harem. I'll be her kinsman redeemer. David has even found a way to look good through this. But it was evil in the sight of the Lord. No matter how David convinced himself. And here's what's going to happen. Preview of chapter 12. A man named Nathan is going to come to David. And he's going to tell him a story. And that will be for next time. And he will confront him with his sin. Are you, were you guys groaning that I said that was for next time? Okay, we'll pass the peanuts. Let's keep going. No, I'm just kidding. From the lineage of David came one whose name is Jesus. Jesus was born about a thousand years after King David lived.
He was known as the son of David. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter one and we'll close by looking at this. Matthew one. This is the book of the genealogy 1-1 of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Jesse, skip down to verse 6 of Matthew 1, was born David, the king. To David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. He'll be born later. The child from this adulterous relationship is going to die. If you skip down, it says these words. Verse 18, Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For it is he who will, what's your Bible say? Save his people from their sins. David, Abraham, Jesse, Bathsheba, Joseph, Daniel, Moses, Peter, Jacob, Job, put your name in there. All saved the same way. He will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus does. He saves us from our sin. So I know we go through these chapters of David's fall and you know, maybe you've been thinking about your own shortcomings. Maybe you've had a recent fall. Maybe you opened the door to the enemy and man, you fell hard. And you ask some questions like, well, what do I do now? Maybe you went into a cover-up mode. Maybe, maybe there's casualties all around you. And you're like, well, what do I do now? Jesus, the greater David, came to save us from our sins. That's the good news of the gospel. And this is a famous Christmas text. And you all know, we're coming to Christmas. Can you believe it? We're almost at Christmas. And we're going to celebrate that God came to this world to save us from ourselves. To save us from our sins. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If he doesn't come on this rescue mission, we're done. But he did come. And he does love you. And he's the God who can give you a new beginning. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the hope that it gives us. If someone like David can fall this hard and this low, it gives me hope that no matter what I've done, how far, how far short I've come of your holiness, there's still hope. You're the God of hope, and you give hope through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that each person in here who needs hope would just reach out. We know you're here. We know you love us. 
But if you're here and maybe this has hit way too close to home and you are wondering if you can move forward, if you can pick up the pieces, if you could even be forgiven, you can. Because he saves sinners. And this is a trustworthy statement. But you have to cry out to him. And you have to repent of your sin. And you have to decide that you're going to follow him and do it his way and not your way. So cry out to him something like this, if it's you, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Thank you that you came into this world, lived the perfect life that I have failed to live. Thank you that you went to that cross, pray it if it's you, and died as though you had committed all of my sins. Thank you that you took the shame, bore my sorrow, my grief, and took my judgment at the cross. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior. Let me be born again of your Holy Spirit. Pray it if it's you. I want to have true life. Father, just for those who are crying out, for those who may be rededicating themselves to you as Lord and King, for all of us, Lord, would you bring times of refreshing from your Holy Spirit and just touch each precious person in this room. Fill them up, show them your glory, and strengthen them in every way they need it. In Jesus' holy name I pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Would you stand?